Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, wonderful to see everyone this morning. Well, whether you brought your own Bible this morning or you need to grab one under the chair in front of you, grasp the living word in your hands and turn with me to the living word, the ever wonderful gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana, as always, for leading us in worship. Christianity has always been called a singing faith, has it not? And we sing not because we have a voice, but because we've been given a song. The psalmist declares, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and with my song, I shall thank him. That he has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. That we sing to the Lord a new song. That the Lord is my strength in my song. Ours is a singing faith. Making melody and song in your heart. To put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. You know, half the time in the Psalms, it is the psalmist lifting up his song to the Lord. My song from, from his heart in times of joy and overflowing. It is your song unto the Lord. In other times, he doesn't have a song. His song has flown away. Perhaps grief has gripped his heart or pain has overcome him. My world is falling apart and I have no song today. It is then that the psalmist sings his song. I will sing your song. The Christian is never without a song. Of living waters coming from your innermost beings. In some days, it may not be your own. You may not feel it one bit and sing the song he gives you. If you can't write your own that day, God always has a song that he gives his children. So sing, Christian. Sing, redeemed of God. On the mountaintop or in the valley, we are never without a song. Amen? Amen. Well, we are so blessed to be continuing now in part four of our series of last things in Mark 13. I know some have expressed great joy at never having learned some of these truths before, and for some of it, it being a great review that have, have not dove into such matters of eschatology for some time. Now, I know it can be a lot to absorb. Today will be no different. <laughs> we are attempting to peel back the layers slowly and systematically so as to not overwhelm. We want you to be both encouraged and equipped going forward. But as we always say, that will take work. We are to flex our muscles of being expository listeners. Eschatology is not an area of study for the faint of heart, for the slothful or the lazy. It can be a new concept for some that they have to work hard when they come to church. Beloved, believe me when I tell you we are only scratching the surface of the beautiful gems that lie embedded in God's word. We are reminded that if Scripture is indeed all-sufficient and inerrant and infallible, if it be God's Word breathed out for us, we will never be able to exhaust its riches. And so it is with the study of last things. This is such a, a deep well to drink from. I pray it has been a, a blessing to you thus far. I know that some of these concepts and principles may be a lot to digest. But beloved, lean in. Work hard at it. Re-listen to the messages online if you're not a note-taker. Purpose to understand these matters. 
And if you feel behind, if you're saying, man, I don't understand half of this, crack the whip on yourself. How do we grow in love for God? What does Philippians 1.9 tell us? Our love for God grows when we increase our what? Our knowledge of God. God connects our love for Him with our knowledge of Him. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You can say you love God, but if you, but if you can't tell me who He is or what He's like, then who is it that you love? Many in our world simply love a God of their own making, a God of their own creation and design. Saints, we learn of Him in the Scriptures. God has chosen to reveal who He is and what He is going to do in His Word. If we do not know the Bible, we cannot know God. Now, some of us can learn at different capacities than others. We all have different gifts, but we are expected to understand to the extent that God has given us the capacity. So be encouraged that in that, even as we wade even deeper and deeper into these glorious waters of, of eschatology, be encouraged. Well, last week we began part one of our series titled, Last Things, Birth Pains. As we began to dig deeper into the Olivet Discourse with Jesus addressing the question by the disciples concerning the end of times and the end of days. Now many of us were raised in certain traditions of eschatology and what we were taught growing up. Still, if these teachings are causing us to either learn this afresh or perhaps reconsider our previous convictions in these matters, I want to remind you and encourage you that you're in good company with the disciples Recall that the entire historic and redemptive timeline of Messiah for the disciples did not resemble anything that they had ever been taught. To the disciples, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the promised Messiah, and the consummation of the age, these were all in lockstep with one another. They were all joined at the hip, right? These would all be sequential events. And they were taught this from childhood in every synagogue. And we know from Jewish eschatology that we, we studied at some length what they taught. If Jesus was here, if Messiah was here, he was going to reign. The time for Israel to be restored and renewed was here. Their conquering hero had arrived. But what happened to that eschatology as the disciples stood there with their faces turned toward the sky with their long-awaited and now-risen Messiah leaving them, ascending back to the Father in heaven, their entire system had to be thrown out. This was like nothing they'd ever been taught. And some of us may feel that same way as we continue our way down Mark 13, but know you are in good company. And you'll notice that we've retained the same verses as last week, and for good reason. For last week, Last week really required us, as we began to open the Olivet Discourse, to lay some foundational concepts, to set up some guidelines, put some chalk lines on the board, right? As we oriented ourselves and our thinking and our direction. Because unless we have some very basic principles laid down, these can be some confusing topics. To approach the Olivet Discourse, or indeed any apocalyptic or eschatological books like Revelation or Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, can seem insurmountable without a good foundation. And thus we did just that, hopefully bringing some much-needed clarity on these very important topics, such as the relationship of Israel to the church, the relationship of the rapture, the taking up of the church, and the second coming of Christ, 
And where that lies in our timeline of the coming tribulation described in our text. We answer the big question up front that looms in the minds of many. Are we living in the end times? According to Jesus, yes we are. According to 2 Peter, the entire third chapter, yes we are. The end times, which culminates with the end of days, are comprised of the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. And that's important to clarify so we don't suffer from what we would call category errors that seem to be rampant in these studies. Knowing that we do live in the end times, as did the disciples, what then will be the realities of life on this ship called earth? Between Jesus' first coming, through the church age, at the rapture of his church, the tribulation, and finally his second coming. We were reminded last week that people have always felt as they observed world events that the return of Christ was imminent, right? And we recall that many books were written during the world wars insisting that his return was imminent. When the nuclear bombs started dropping in World War II, they were looking to the sky. And as Christians, they were and and we are right to live in great expectation of the rapture of his church. But we must use the best text when we consider the reason for this hope we have. Our hope for this collection of his church prior to these judgments rests upon 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Titus 2, and Revelation 3.10. Can you write that fast? So the Olivet Discourse, while giving us something of a near fulfillment, certainly as we, we experience wars in our present age, earthquakes and famines in our present age, False messiahs in Christ, these certainly draw our our minds and our hearts toward these fulfillments. And they stand as a close-in, tangible reminder of the consequences of sin and of the groaning of creation. But Jesus' discourse points to a much greater and sadly a far deadlier fulfillment. A far fulfillment that we will begin exploring further today. Saints, the great danger in misapplying the timeline of the Olivet Discourse is that we equate or we start to give equal weight to the wars we see now with the wars in our text. With the deception that we see now and the deception in our text. The earthquakes and the famines that we see now and with those spoken of in our text. Because, beloved, what we see and we experience now is nothing compared to these. And we will demonstrate that as we dive deeper. Now, beloved, before we begin, let us remind ourselves of the bookends that Jesus has given us to approach these matters with. First bookend was in verse 5, was it not? See to it, Jesus begins, that no one deceives you. That's your first bookend. And go all the way down to the bottom. What's the last bookend? Verse 37. Verse 37. And what I say to you all, Stay awake. Don't be deceived. Stay awake. That is to be the disposition of our mind and our heart, not only as we study these matters, beloved, but as we live in light of them, as we warn others of them. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text as we explore last things. Birth pains, our second installment. Mark 13, again, 6 through 8. Mark 13, 6 through 8. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. 
For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we always come, we come as needy people. Lord, we cannot even see or begin to approach these texts without the aid and function of the Holy Spirit in our life. Lord, these are difficult matters, and I I pray that you not only aid the preacher, Lord, but that you aid the hearers of this word, that they may be able to follow and engage, Lord, that their hearts might be transformed and changed by it. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, as we ponder our last few years, what with the advent of COVID-19 in 2019, which yielded, of course, in the partial shutting down of the economy and the extreme financial distress, the utter disruption and chaos that was sown into the, the very fabrics of our institutions and society, it gave us an incredible look into the psyche of humans when things start to go bad. How do they react when they are scared? One of the most notable traits that we saw were people's overriding desire to feel safe. Safe, safe, safe. It was the overriding pinnacle of all. The highest good in that season was seen to be safety. And when fear took over, we watched two things happen. First, leaders arose from everywhere local and national, to fill this vacuum of fear, offering supposed solutions. And many of these leaders proved to be quite terrible. Their proposals were often deadly, but people followed them. Why? Because they were scared. When people are scared, they will follow anyone who looks like they may have a solution to restore order and to make them feel safe again. This we will see as we open with verse 6. Verse 6, we must be framed up properly. First, understanding the state of the world in which the inhabitants of verse 6 find themselves. Birth pains have begun. The church has been taken. And along with her goes the salty, preserving effect upon a society. Along with her goes the Holy Spirit's general restraint of sin upon society. Of course, we know that sin corrodes and it destroys everything it touches. It is acid upon the fibers of the world. The moment the church is gone, as we said last week, the water breaks. And the contractions now begin to come in hot and heavy for the next seven years during this time known as the tribulation. And the panic and the societal ills of COVID-19 was nothing compared to this. With society completely breaking down and sin running rampant and unchecked. Beloved, we may not realize how much of our society and economy rely upon the basic Judeo-Christian ethic to function. Show up to work. Don't steal, don't kill. Things like that that people generally associate with being a moral or a decent person. All that is now gone. And people will be waxing worse and worse. How many of you have experienced what we'll call the momentum of sin before? Sin is not stagnant in place. It grows and it moves. 
So what is going to happen with all this taking place? With society in essential collapse, people are going to cry out for leadership. Civil and religious. Come fix this. Well, look with me in verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. So how many? Many. Many will come. Many false messiahs are going to present themselves in the tribulation offering supposed hope or supposed solutions. There will be a thronging, palpable desire for leadership. Most people want to follow someone, right? Most people want a sense that someone somewhere is in charge. Someone's at the helm. One of the judgments of this time in the tribulation will be a proliferation of false messiahs, false saviors. Unless we think that Christianity, as it were, and the usage of its name and the co-opting of its name and its virtues and reputation have left with the rapture of the church, that's not even close. Remember, beloved, the world has always loved the fruit of Christianity and the blessings that it brings upon a society. Who doesn't love peace and joy and happiness? They love to eat the fruit of Christianity. They come pluck it off our tree all the time. They just hate the root. Give me the fruit and keep the root. We want your peace and your joy. We just don't want your exclusive Christ. And more appropriately in this scenario, in this circumstance, we know that Satan, who is the driving force behind all these false Christs, loves most not to be appearing to eradicate Christianity, but to co-opt it and to alter it and to tweak it or to imitate it. Look at our text. Whose name are these false messiahs coming in? In the name of Buddha? No. What does our text say? In my name. And they will mislead many. Here is where we need to grasp the momentum of this and the danger of mislabeling our times. Today, beloved, if you were to ask the average person on the street what they think a false messiah is, people claiming they were Jesus, well, they may think of various cult leaders, right? Like guys like David Koresh, or perhaps they would think of the disturbed guy mumbling on the corner who says that he's Jesus. I saw one the other day, as a matter of fact. Society as a whole label these guys as fringe, crazies, wackos, right? But hang on. Here's where it's so vital that we get this right. What about this time? What will be the deception of this time? Look to your Bibles down to verse 21 and 22. Jesus actually circles back around to this. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ. Behold, he is there. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Matthew's account saying the same. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The deception of this time is like nothing we see today. These false messiahs are bringing receipts. They have power. They will perform signs and wonders. It's one thing to say you're, you're Christ on a street corner. It's another thing to say you're Christ and then perform a supernatural sign or wonder to prove it. And it will lead many astray. 
Religious delusion is and has always been a part of judgment. Now this delusion will be so strong that even the elect, those whom God will save during the time of the tribulation, that he will, that he will bring to salvation, and there will be many, the delusion will be so strong, so strong, that if it were possible to ultimately deceive him, these guys could do it. That's what it's saying. But all of these false messiahs, these false Christs popping up in the tribulation, during this time, they have great purpose and function. They are paving the way for their master, a figure in scripture known as the Antichrist. Now, this is a topical series all on its own, and we will touch further on him as we get further into the second half of the tribulation, beginning with the abomination of desolation in verse 14. But for now, know that he is one who will rise amidst the chaos of the times as a strong leader, and he'll bring a false peace. All these other false Christs are forerunners to the big guy. He'll be a very charismatic and powerful individual that will seem to bring order and peace to a decaying and chaotic world. But here now, as we further look into verse 6, we come upon one of the glorious challenges of eschatology. As we look toward the art of following and piecing it together, of course, it requires bringing together different parts of Scripture to hopefully demystify and bring some further clarity. Now, most know, for example, that the book of Revelation is a highly eschatological book. It is an apocalyptic writing. And because of that, how many Christians shy away from reading it? Because it seems a little just too hard to understand and just seems too vague. Well, I hope to demystify a good portion of Revelation for us during our series, insofar as it relates to the Olivet Discourse. Now, some parts of the end times, if we, as we've said before, they don't all line up in neat rows. Some aspects look a lot more like a Venn diagram of, of coalescing circles than that of neatly fitting together Lego pieces. Yet we know that we can approach these texts with great confidence and continuity. What we will see is that the beautiful tapestry of the Olivet Discourse in all of its awesome powers and declarations and judgments are woven with perfection throughout Scripture. Reminding us, beloved, that Scripture has one author. The God who has decreed the end from the beginning has not changed his plans or his design. How God planned to bring judgment and finality upon the earth in the Old Testament is still how he plans to do it as he closes out Revelation. So let that be our guiding light as we explore these truths. Now again, some may have never swam in the depths of Revelation, but we must open not only parts of this book, but of Zechariah and Daniel and even Ezekiel to rightly divide Jesus' answer to his disciples. Now, Revelation, from a very broad, broad overview, it looks like this. It opens with John the Revelator having a vision of Christ. Next come Jesus' seven messages to the churches. And next are seven scenes in heaven. Then seven seals and seven trumpets and seven signs. Then seven plagues. And finally, chapters 17 through 22 are the seven final visions. Easy, right? That's not so hard. Now, if you look back to Revelation 5, that's right in the middle of what we call the seven scenes in heaven. We have a very important event that takes place there that we need to observe. 
So let's turn there this morning, beloved, if you will, to Revelation 5. In fact, I'd recommend putting a finger or a marker in Revelation because we'll be dancing around there back and forth quite a bit. You'll notice the title for Revelation chapter 5 in your Bibles probably reads something like this, the book with seven seals. And here we watch as all heaven appears to be looking for one who can open this book. Who is worthy to open this book? And they say, there is no one. There is no one. But then one of the elders in verse 5, what does he declare? He says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, this may sound familiar to some with the, well, the now very popularized worship song, Is He Worthy? Right? Is He Worthy? Asking if anyone is able to break the seal and open the scroll. That's what we're talking about here. And the answer is yes, there is. But what is this book? What is this scroll? We see in chapter 5 a scroll with seven seals upon it. And each one of these seals represent a divine judgment that is to be poured out on the earth during the time of tribulation, which of course culminates with the return of Christ. One theologian remarked that this scroll contained the title and deed to the earth. And I love that. But unlike a normal title deed that merely described the property or described the inheritance, instead, this scroll would dictate how he would execute reclaiming what was rightfully his. Here's how you're going to do it. While we won't dive into them now, the first four of these seals, the first four of these judgments occur in the first part of the tribulation. The first three and a half of the total seven years of tribulation. Thus it is those that we will focus on over our next few messages. The fifth seal happens in kind of both the first and second half. And finally the last two seals, the last two judgments upon the earth will be opened in the last half. The last three and a half years known as the great tribulation. And that last one, the seventh one is a doozy. It's a doozy. Within it is contained seven trumpet judgments and seven bowl judgments. Now, don't be overwhelmed. We're just putting that out there for context now. But the reason that we are in chapter 5 is that something happens to this scroll, this book. We've found someone who is worthy to open it, to execute it. We've found the heir, and it's all his. And it's all his. So what happens in Revelation 5, beginning at verse 6? Look at your Bibles, beloved. Revelation 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And what do they proclaim in verse 9? And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book 
and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Oh, I could read the rest of that chapter. So what has happened in this scene? The book, the scroll has been placed in the hands of Christ to execute. The world is his. It was always his. But now with the bride of Christ and the church raptured and gone, the earth is full of squatters. It's full of squatters. But the owner's coming back. And he's reclaiming what he owns. Now he spoke of the beautiful tapestry of the Olivet Discourse that runs throughout Scripture, reminding us that there is but one author. And thus what we will notice first as you turn your page now to Revelation 6. Go one page over, beloved. Which begins to lay out the opening of the seals. We notice with great wonderment that the unfolding of the seals in Revelation parallels exactly the progression and detail of the Olivet Discourse, particularly as it's recorded in the more thorough account of Matthew 24. The first four seals are all represented by a horse and a rider. Now, most are familiar with the term the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? You've heard that probably from Hollywood or something. Well, that's where this comes from. Now, these are not people per se, but these forced four seals represent forces and actions and events like war and earthquakes and famine. To look to our first sign, Jesus gives us in Mark 13:6. back to our text, what does he say? Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And the parallel verse in Matthew 24 reads, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now, we spoke uh, at length about this already, about false messiahs coming to promise peace and solutions, even using the name of Christ, that they will come as an antidote to save the systems of the world that are absolutely crumbling now with the force of the Holy Spirit that restrains sin with that particular attribute of the Holy Spirit removed from the earth. The system crashes fast. And by the way, we find that restraining force, that attribute of the Holy Spirit spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7. through And you know what is restraining him, being, him being the Antichrist, now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So when the church is raptured and taken out and the water breaks, it makes way for the coming of the Antichrist. And they will beg for him. They'll beg for him. I wonder how many remember right after 9-11, in the aftermath of that awful attack, you couldn't even use an ATM. The entire financial system froze and broke down that fast. Many will come in my name promising to save you from the mayhem, even in the name of Jesus. Turn yourself back to Revelation 6. We will see that the first sign in the Olivet Discourse is the first seal in Revelation 6. That I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, 
And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So this first seal, this rider, he brings a false peace. This will be through diplomacy and deception. It will be through charisma. Now at this point, this is not a bloody conquering. These false Christs and the ultimate false Christ, the Antichrist, will be given a crown. Meaning, yes, thank you. We want your solutions. We want your plan. We love you. We even worship you. Be our king. He's given a crown. He will have had remarkable achievements and the world will love him for it. Not only him, but in a lesser way, the many that came before him, the explosion of many antichrists, if you will, the explosion of false messiahs and Christ, people will flock to them and they will crown them. And one will actually usher in a global temporary false peace, a peace not brought about by war, but by diplomacy and mutual agreements. Daniel speaks extensively about this man. Daniel 7, 8 tells us that he will be a persuasive speaker. Daniel 8, 25 says he'll have incredible economic abilities and insight. Daniel 7, 23 tells us he'll have great military prowess and abilities. Daniel 11 shows us he'll be a deeply religious person. Isn't that something? We'll get into more detail here when we get to the abomination of desolation, but this is just a taste. Thus, the first seal, the white horse, is one who brings with it a false peace, a solution to all the world's problems as it's melting down. Many will come offering that. Do not believe them. Do not follow them. First signed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, first seal in Revelation. And yet, these are not the only places we see this, beloved. Remember, one author in Scripture, Zechariah, Chapters 1 and 6 also contain these horses, red, white, and spotted. We'll have much more on that in coming messages. Stay tuned. But see the continuity of Scripture. And why do you care about that as you walk out the door today? Beloved, when we say that God is on the throne, ruling and reigning, all the way from the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel declared in Genesis 3.15, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That God not only had a plan to redeem fallen man from Adam's sin, but that he would take sin upon himself. A plan to redeem his elect from all nations was already established. Up through the prophets, through Ezekiel and Daniel, through Zechariah, through the Gospels and the Olivet Discourse, through Paul and Thessalonians and Corinthians, all the way to Revelation. He has shown us how he will ultimately deal with sin and how he will cleanse the world. He's going to burn it down. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where righteousness reigns. So if that doesn't have an impact on your life, well, we have yet to grasp its magnitude. If that much has been planned, if his faithfulness has extended from generation to generation, 
If while you were yet unfaithful, he was still faithful. Why do we fret, dear Christian? Why are you anxious? He will not leave you nor forsake you. All according to plan. Genesis to Revelation. And here, according to the tapestry of the Olivet Discourse, it proclaims its surety as a comfort for the godly, for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ through repentance and faith. And it stands as a warning to those who are not in Christ. These events will come. What is next? Verse 7 of our text. Mark 13, verse 7. Actually, I'm going to include the the first part of verse 8 in that. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Again, yes, we have a foretaste of this in the entire ethos of human history. Wars have always been with us. They've always marred the landscape of the human existence. But those wars are not what Christ has in view here. We're talking about a cataclysmic, a worldwide war of the nations, all brought against the nation of Israel. Culminating, of course, on the plains of Megiddo, also known as Armageddon. Well, Jesus will return and protect her. Zechariah 14, where we read from last week, tells us of Jesus' return to the Mount of Olives, how he will split it when he touches down, but it goes on to speak of this war. Zechariah writes, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the city will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Most of Daniel 11 looks toward the same event. These are not wars like we have known. Revelation 14, 19 through 20 tells us, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. For 200 miles, which, by the way, is almost exactly the distance from the north of Israel to the south of Israel, the horses will walk up to their bridles in blood. This is like nothing we've ever experienced. And just so, we see this reflected in the second seal of Revelation 6, if you turn back there, beloved. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Red, of course, being the color of fire and blood, it depicts war. This false peace that will have been ushered in, we see it obviously does not last. Yet it bears observing whose wrath it is that's represented in the second horseman. Now some may offer that this is the wrath of Satan. 
manifested and worked out in the Antichrist. And to be fair, we do read in Revelation 12, 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So it may seem a convenient parallel to draw, but let us remember who holds the scroll. Who is it that is unraveling the scroll? Who's actually driving here? God is driving. Christ is driving. Satan is reacting. He brought a deceptive and a false peace, and that was allowed. And the peace will be dissolved, and great war will come. And as a skilled politician and leader, the Antichrist desires one thing, and that's to retain power. There's nothing new under the sun. Why, it will be his own actions that will bring about the ultimate war. We'll speak on that next week on the abomination of desolation. But understand that this cataclysmic battle and the conflict that will lead up to it is ultimately God's allowance. God's plans have always and will at the end count on sinners to sin. And while Satan has come down in great wrath and great anger... God will use that wrath toward his good, toward his just and his righteous ends. Beloved, some have a hard time with that. They have a hard time seeing God that way. But his holiness demands it. Understand, beloved, God's wrath is greatest because his holiness is greatest. He alone possesses the capacity for the greatest offense Because he alone is perfect. We must understand that. Satan could never possess the type of wrath. Because he's fallen. He's mad. And he's coming down mad. And he's got a bowl full of wrath. And boy will he usher in terrible things by his maneuvering. But he doesn't have the scroll. He doesn't have the scroll. And he didn't open it. The second red horse is not his. Make sure we grasp that. Finally, last part of verse 8, back to our text. Last part of verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Of course, God using famine in the past is nothing new in judgment. And here, most likely, though, while it it could be God's sovereign command over the weather that, that brings drought and famine like Joseph in Egypt, here it seems that this comes about because of the other escalating wars. It comes about because the world's systems have crashed and the supply lines are shattered. I think we know something about that now. You thought your shelves were bare during COVID. It's just a taste. Even if a farmer could grow a stock of wheat, you need fuel to move the machinery. You need a collection point. You need a way to be able to transact money and set a marketplace, a market price. Think of all that is required along the way to get your meal to your table that you didn't grow in your backyard. It's a lot. Thus, you can imagine how famine would be overwhelming here. Millions will perish from it. Jesus tells us of earthquakes, natural disasters in our Olivet Discourse. There's one author in Scripture that now brings us to the third seal of Revelation 6. 
When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, a quart of wheat, that's just over a pint. That's barely enough to sustain life in a person. And a denarius, of course, is what? That's considered a day's wage. So see the scene. Work a full day. All that will get you is hand to mouth. Enough to sustain life, and even that will not be enough. Encompassed in all Jesus is saying here are all manner of natural disasters, earthquakes. Of course, this brings with us all sorts of rampant disease. Beloved, there are no hospitals fully staffed with smiling nurses and doctors to care for you. They're just trying to get a pint of wheat at this point. Dr. John MacArthur, he writes, quote, Crops and other vegetation will be devastated throughout the world. Those who depend upon the sea for food will suffer famine. A third of the world's shipping will be destroyed. Countless people will be poisoned from contaminated water supplies. And calendars, seasons, and tides will be thrown out of kilter. The physical and emotional agony will be so excruciating that men, Revelation 16.10, will gnaw their tongues because of the pain. Their torment will be like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And men will seek death, and they will not find it. And they will long to die, and death flees from them. We haven't had time to look to the fourth scroll, which really wraps into these verses as well. I don't honestly know if our hearts can bear it this morning. But Christian, Christian, reflect and be wise. Are we playing fast and loose in our walk with Christ? Do we play fast and loose with the enemy of our souls? Are you playing footsie with him? Do we walk the fine line of sin, seeking how close to the line we can get without stepping over? Or do we flee from it? Understand our takeaway of eschatology and of last things. Sin has brought all of this about. Do we see it for the wretchedness that it is? And it was so serious, it took the blood of the darling of heaven, sacrificed and poured out to pay the sin debt that stood against us as believers. And it is so serious that God is going to bring about unimaginable judgments. The bill is going to come due. Every sin will be accounted for, either under the blood of Christ for those that will repent and come to him, or in hell. For those that would stand on their own pride and accomplishments. There is a peace and rest coming for those who have trembled before a holy God. Who have thrown themselves upon his mercy and leapt into the lifeboat of Christ the Savior. But there is a tribulation. And there is a real hell for those who will not heed the call. If that offends you. Know that no one spoke of hell in Scripture more than Jesus Christ. So take it up with the author. The Olivet Discourse, eschatology, is meant to shake us by the shoulders. Wake up! You don't get to do life on your terms. 
You don't get to serve God on your terms. Beloved, these are fearful things we've spoken of today. And they are as sure to come as the sun rose this morning. It will come to pass. We are swimming in evidences and foretastes of it. And that is a pleading of the Spirit of God to a rebellious people today. But God will not strive with man forever. He has been gracious enough to show us the end. To put up warning signs along the river that a falls are ahead. Danger. Beloved, the earth quakes and trembles for a reason. Men war for a reason. There is suffering and starvation for a reason. And that is just a foretaste. Might we heed that warning and call this morning. For the Christian, watch your life. Will we play so flippantly with that sin which has exacted so tremendous a price? And for the unbeliever, or for the person who claims the name of Christ but truly has no part in him, the danger signs on the side of the road are a mercy to you today. They are put there to love you, to protect you, and to save a life. Flee to the Savior this morning. Heed Jesus' words. Heed his warning. Today is a day of mercy for you. Today you may breathe in clean air. You may go outside and feel sunshine upon your face. You may receive grace and you may come to a kind Jesus through repentance and faith. But he is a Jesus who's not yet been given the scroll in heaven. What a beautiful day of grace for those who will lay hold of it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out now, Lord, that we might not have to cry out on that day. Lord, we hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock of Christ now, Lord, that we might not ask the rocks to fall on us in that day. Heavenly Father, these are hard things. And Lord, we know that there are those who are hearing attributes and characters of God that they struggle with and that are hard to hear. But Lord, these are your words. We ask, Lord, that we might be reconciled to you. Reconciled to a holy God through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we ask as we consider these deep waters that we not be overwhelmed, but that we be encouraged and equipped as we go forward this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.